Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and thanks again for joining us. My name is Kurt Bullard and I'm a first year MBA student at Sloan. It's my pleasure today to introduce our panel, a conversation with Mark Cuban and Andy Slavitt. Our panelists today are Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and Annie Slavitt, senior advisor on the White House COVID response team. Our panel today will be moderated by Nate Silver, editor-in-chief of 538. The panel will run for 35 minutes, and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. Please use Twitter using the hashtag CubanSlavitt to ask questions online. With that, I'll turn it over to Nate. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, hello, Andy, and hello, uh, Mark. Um, I'm going to spend most of our time here asking about COVID um, and some sports-related COVID topics, but not purely sports by any means, um, in part because, like, in my head, I kind of associate the Sloan Conference with COVID. Um, it happened in mid-March last year, kind of right when the pandemic was becoming very bad in the United States. I think I had like two or three separate exposures um, that were Sloan-related where I had to quarantine from at one point. Um, but I want to kind of take us back to, to March 11th, 2020, which is the day that Tom Hanks diagnosed himself with COVID, Rudy Gobert did, the WHO declared a global pandemic. I mean, Mark, you kind of had like a front row seat for all this, you're kind of seen yeah. at a Mavericks game in disbelief as the season was being canceled. I mean, what was that? What was that like? Can you take us through kind of what your thoughts were at the time, how you thought sure. things would play out? Um, well, let me start earlier that day. Obviously, you know, there was a lot of conversation and discussion, discussion about COVID and the pandemic and what was going to happen. And I went through my normal routine going to the arena and I walked into the locker room because a a lot of the guys had questions. And so we took a few minutes for me to answer any questions about what I thought would happen. And we went around and I said, look, you know, I don't really know for certain. Um, and I remember Luca asking me the last question saying, you know, there were things being canceled in um, Europe. Did I think that we'd have games canceled in here in the NBA? And I'd say five, 10% chance. I don't really expect it, but we'll know when we walk on the court. Because the wisdom of the crowd obviously will tell us that, you know, if there's a bunch of empty seats for a sold out game, then people are afraid. If there's not, then maybe they know something we don't and we'll find out. And so we go out to the court. Every seat was taken. Now, you know, I mean, the no shows, there's always a few, but there weren't many. And so the game went on and I'm thinking nothing of it. And then in the third quarter, as everybody saw, I got the text saying that uh, we're showing the text saying that the season had been suspended and I I was stunned, you know? And so then, you you know, my mind started going, okay, what happens now? Right. You know, I've got a lot of responsibilities to the organization, my other businesses, my family, you know, the country in general, you know, how are we all going to respond to this? And, you know, that's really where my mind went at that point in time. I mean, Andy, did did you have a moment where, I think it's kind of tricky because I think one thing Mark is kind of getting a little bit here is like, you can have like an intellectual recognition that COVID was going to be pretty bad, right? Like I knew at the Sloan conference, I was like, I kind of know objectively it's going to be the last time we have like a big gathering like this for a while. I thought a while meant a few months and not 
a year and a half, right? But emotionally, it took longer to hit me. It was on, I was on a plane that day flying to see some family when the Gobert news hit and the Tom Hanks news hit. But do you have a moment where it registered for you, Andy, that COVID was going to be a really, really big problem for the United States? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, like Mark, I was also at an extremely huge basketball game. Uh, this is my son, Zach's Minnesota semifinal varsity tournament game. <laughs> um, and it was at the exact moment. Um, but I go back a little bit earlier. It was, I was, in, it was in February, and um, some people who were studying pandemics sent me a graph, and a governor sent me a graph. And it was really showing kind of what had happened, what's happened in South Korea and in Italy. And it was just at the beginning of when South Korea was flat and Italy's curve was going up. And I asked the question, well, what, what will it take for us to be look more like South Korea than Italy? And the person said, oh, it's too late. And they explained to me, yeah. the, you know, how, in fact, um, a lot of it's invisible, not being tested, can't see it, et cetera. And I remember standing in my hallway um, with sort of 50 consequences hitting me at the same time. And then that a night later, I went on um, MSNBC and just to show you how much this was in people's consciousness, there was a 54 minute show on other topics, including, you know, Michael Bloomberg's um, uh, non-consent agreements and all this. And in the last minute they brought me on the show and I said, hey, we might be having a pandemic here. And, uh, and, but, and, and so obviously things happen very quickly after that. Yeah, no, it kind of happened. It's this background of uh, the Democratic primary was all happening during this time. It was kind of a wild period. Um, I mean, I want to ask both about the individual response and the governmental response and how those overlap. I guess I'll start with the governmental response to keep you on the line here, Andy. Um, I mean, let's say we do have now the benefit of hindsight. Um, but let's say for some reason, the Biden administration takes over on January 20th, 2020. Um, what would you have done differently? Was it already too late or, or what were the key early you know, uh, missteps? Yeah, well, look, no, nobody was gonna get it perfect and I shouldn't pretend in a do-over, the hindsight's easy. What I would say is just judging by how President Biden has approached the vaccines I would. I think he would have approached um, things like testing and national testing in the same way, which is namely to aggressively take federal accountability in partnership with states, rather than what I think happened, which is that um, the federal government was very eager to get the country open, obviously, not uh, not doing nothing, but also not wanting to be responsible for everything that happened with the pandemic, and. Uh, and there were plenty of people inside the administration, by the way, who I think, I think wanted to do more, but were afraid to get out a little bit in front of their boss, um, and who was who didn't want to treat this as aggressively. And I think when you have fifty states and territories, each with their own best effort, each trying to buy supplies, each trying to figure out a testing strategy in the middle of having shortages, uh, in the middle of you know, um, you know, states which don't have real public health departments or budgets, uh, the federal government does, um, you know, you're just hobbling yourself. And I think, so at some level, um, I think there is some fair criticism. There were also just plain mistakes that are made in the heat of battle. CDC had a couple of well-publicized errors and, and so forth. 
do I think that was the whole equation? No, I don't. I think, you know, the, the public's inexperience with pandemics in the US really showed as compared to places like Hong Kong and, and, and Africa and, and other parts of the world where, where they'd had more experience. And so reflexively, they took public health measures more seriously. We had a, I think a much more prolonged debate um, about liberties and other kinds of things. So th there are some things that I don't think government would have necessarily been able to control for, but there certainly were some things I think that they could have. Yeah, I remember being in um, in New York in a couple of days after Sloan, right? And kind of, it was like you see a movie where like 25% of the people are, are removed from the picture. It was kind of eerie, right? And I'm like, oh, I can go and do all these things where it's not crowded, right? There's like not a line, it's hard to get into a restaurant, right? It was idiotic, of course, right? There was a ton of transmission in New York happening at the time. So the 25% of people were being smart. I was being dumb, but but I mean, Mark, you mentioned before how you had a full capacity crowd at the Mavericks game that night. Um, and you kind of are charged with predicting human behavior in a business context. I mean, what surprised you about, about people's response to, to, to COVID? Um, not a lot because of the lack of information. The fundamental underpinning of all of this was the was simple question, who do we trust with our lives? And we really didn't know who to trust. And when you don't know who to trust for something this important, everybody kind of looks inward and, and tries to make the best decision that they can. But when you do that with so little information, then you get a lot of disjointed, you know, responses. And, you know, the fact, like Andy mentioned, we put liberties first. We didn't, we didn't go to people with, you know, we didn't go where the expertise was. We left it to states who may not, may or may not have had expertise. We left it to individual municipalities and cities, you know, and mayors and, you know, it was crazy as opposed to saying, okay, who was best suited to dealing with these issues? And I dealt with the White House quite a bit in terms of dealing with PPE. And you talk about a clusterfuck. It was everybody out for themselves, <laughs> everybody doing deals. Yeah. You know, I, rem I remember saying to, and I don't want to drop names, but the people that I was speaking to in the White House, and I'm like, look, you need to come up with an exchange and you need to come up with a database where we continuously pull poll all the people who need PPE, hospitals, you know, all the providers and all the sources, and let's find out what's available because otherwise everybody's competing for limited supplies. That's driving up prices. That's creating inefficiencies and people are over buying double and triple and quadruple buying just to try to, to come up with enough mass. And we weren't, you know, I, I called out 3M as an example. Um, because they weren't providing any information and the federal government should have been getting the information from the largest suppliers. They literally sent me, these people I was involved with sent me, there's a company outside of Fort Worth called Prestige Ameritech to try to help them get organized so that they could produce enough mass and, and source it to the government because they didn't know how to deal with each other. It was just really, really a mess um, because of lack of focus and lack of organization. Nate, Nate, can I toss in um, just can I toss in just two two things here that I think yeah. um, are important? And you know, Marcus, Marcus is somewhat an example of, of, of one. Is one of the things that I did when when I got here was I called I set up calls with every business, every CEO, tech industry, uh, retailers, sports leagues, or everybody. And what was amazing, as as you would expect, everybody wanted to help. 
everybody said, what can I do? And I think it was a missed opportunity over the first year because you know, somebody said something really smart to me at one point, which was, it's easier to do something than to do nothing. And we asked Americans to do nothing. You know, there was a period of time when people were sewing masks, and I think they felt productive and they felt involved. And I think that was, that was good. But when they had no energy for stuff, it was just turned into mischief and trouble. And so I think we missed an opportunity to rally the country. Whether people liked the president or not, people I think would have rallied if he would have called on them. And I think, um, you know, Mark, very early on, people may remember, made a statement about how he was gonna care for the employees of the Mavericks. And what was so compelling about it is there was a void and there was an opportunity for someone to step up and say, here's the way to do things. Here's a way to do things. Why don't you, know, why don't you consider following? And we could have done that at greater scale. Um, I think we would have been a lot better off and it would have felt a lot better. The second thing is just, telling the public the truth, um, good or news or bad news, straight facts. Um, and, and because we're going to ask a lot of the public and you are, when you ask the public to potentially risk their business, you know, change their life, be away from their family. Um, you know, you got to basically say, look, folks, this isn't going to be over tomorrow. Um, and you can't keep promising a miracle around the corner or it gets very fatiguing. So it's a hard thing to do, but whether it's good news or bad, to say, to just square it off with the public and say, you know, you're smart enough to know what to do, but we got to give you all the facts we know. Yeah, I remember telling people, um, you know, and I thought it was prescient at the time because I'm like, I was saying, okay, if you have something in March or April, it might get canceled by the friend who had a vacation in May. I'm like, I'm sure by May you'll be fine, right? I think you'd actually taken time to like produce a proper forecast. You know how long these pandemics last, right? Um, and that probably wasn't very realistic, but um, yeah. I, I do want to ask um, a couple of sports-related questions. Um, so now, Andy, happily, we are kind of in a phase now of getting back to some phases of normal in some parts of the country, at least. Um, more and more people are being vaccinated. I actually went for the first time in more than a year to a live sporting event the other night. I went to a Yankees game. 20% um, capacity, you have to have proof of vaccination or a negative test, so it felt quite safe. Um, but what do you feel about protocols like that? Is it, is it too soon for people to go back to live sporting venues? Is outdoors different than indoors? Um, does it differ in say Michigan right now where they're having an outbreak? Is it too much to have full attendance like they're having in Texas right now? What do you, what do you think about that? So I, I would say that we are probably a couple, within a couple of months, we will be substantially close to that place. Um, you know, I would say that putting aside regional differences for a second, you know, if we get through what I think is going to happen with the remainder of the vaccinations and they have the kind of effect that they've had in places like Israel, where you've got average of seven people dying every day, they've got about two thirds of their public has had their first shot. Um, we have about 45% uh, of adults, the first shot. So when we get to that point, um, I think, which is, which I think we're very close to, I mean, it, a couple months sounds like a long time when you're looking ahead, it's not very long at all when you're looking behind you. Uh, if we can get to that place, I think we're gonna be in, in really good shape. And let's think ahead. We want schools open in the fall. We want sports going on in the fall, we want all those things. So I think we gotta suck it up for a couple more months. I don't think we're entirely there yet. Obviously individual decisions are a different matter. Um, there are a lot of low risk things you can do, particularly if you've been vaccinated. Just remember that you know half the country hasn't been vaccinated yet. So we can't, you know, what I find happens a lot is 
the same person the day before they're vaccinated is yelling and screaming about variants and they're worried. The day after they get vaccinated, they're yelling and screaming about not being able to eat indoors at restaurants. It's human nature, but we're very split right now. And if you're in one camp, you got to remember that there's a whole bunch of people that are in that other camp. So you think vaccinated people should kind of be more careful than they maybe need to be as a show of solidarity, sort of? No, no, I think you'd recognize that like the reason we're not opening up everything and all travel and all airport and all these things is because um, we've got a lot of people that still aren't there yet. Um, the vaccines are um, not 100% effective. They're damn close, but there are, there are breakthrough cases. There are people with immunological issues who can't take the vaccine. So as long as this thing is spreading, we're gonna to continue to have some measure of public safety measures in place. But when we get to a place like, I'm calling it 4th of July, I don't think we'll be at a herd immunity. But I don't, think we, I don't think we as a country wait until we get to a herd immunity. I think we get to a reasonable place where it's safe for most people. Some people are probably gonna to continue to take precautions. But you know, if I had to forecast ahead, I'd say, I'd say that that is, and it's which is dangerous to do, I'd say, you know, we continue to vaccinate at the current rate, lots of stuff will be open. Again, you as an individual, um, you know, you've got a lot more freedom if you had a vaccine, but if you're frustrated that your restaurant is only open 25% to the public or 50% to the public, you have to understand that's why. Mark, how do you feel about this notion of, of vaccine passports? Um, hate at it. the Yankees game, hate you actually it. have some people using what's called an Excelsior passport. So why do you, why do you hate that idea? Hate it, hate it. And it's not even an individual liberty. It's almost an excuse for people not to get vaccinated. You know, I think we need to just keep on pushing until we get to whatever that herd immunity number is. And by putting together a vaccine passport program, you're going to freak people out. The people who are least likely to get vaccinated are the ones that are going to rebel the most against a vaccine passport, and you're gonna give them another reason not to be vaccinated. And that's just awful to me. Whereas we're starting to break down the, the vaccine hesitancy and more people are realizing, like we had guys on our team, their grandma you know, or granddads got vaccinated and that reduced their hesitancy and, and opened them up to taking it. If now you introduce a vaccine passport and the next thing you know is they're saying, well, that's just the first step towards you know, tracking this, this, and this, or taking my guns away or whatever it may be, you know how these things work, then I, I think that's awful. And so I'm not a fan. I think we just focus on, you know, educating people that are hesitant to get the vaccine. And that kind of takes care of the problem itself. So if, if American Airlines says it's a business decision, um, we're going to be the airline for vaccinated people and we're going to be the safest airline. You don't have to wear masks on American Airlines. Um, do you think they should have, A, do you think it'd be a terrible business decision or a good no. one? And B, do you think they should have the right to do that? They have the right to do that and they'll find out if it's good or bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's like the same as a lot of other things where, you know, in this country now, for better or worse, whether it's gun control or vaccine passports, we've defined these, these, these trigger issues as things we have to take a stand on, right? We're, we're immutable in our positions. This is who we are. This is our, our brand identity as individuals. We bandwagon everything in this country. And so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I just think because of just the way the numbers, the data that I've seen says that, you know, there's the people who are hesitant 
on vaccines are the ones least likely to support any type of government-driven um, documentation, I think it would be a huge mistake. But from a business perspective, perspective, it's going to be up to each individual business. Um, Andy, we are at a point now where, fortunately, the number of vaccines uh, going into arms every day has increased a lot to um, three point some million. Some days even you get to four million. Um, but we're at a phase now where we're going from having a supply shortage to, I think it's not quite right to say a demand shortage. It's a little more complicated than that. But talk to me about vaccine access and hesitancy issues, right? Um, there are a group of people in polls who say they want to get the vaccine, they haven't gotten it yet, right? There's another group who say, I'm kind of on the fence. Talk to me about those two groups and what, um, what the White House and states and localities can do to help increase the number as close to 100% as possible. It's a great question, and I think it's going to be one of the most important questions over the next couple of months. Is there are a lot of people who just said, I want this vaccine as soon as it's ready? And they're mostly people over 50, people high, at high risk. People tend to be skew a little higher in education, um, uh, experience, et cetera, trust in science, you know, you can imagine. Um, there's a, then there's a large group of people that said, you know what, I'll, I'll take it, but I don't want to go first. Those people, I think, are getting off the fence and getting the vaccine because. You know, we've seen 120 million vaccines in, in this country alone. Um, we've seen a, a very good safety record, and we've seen um, uh, uh, obviously, you know, a dramatic decrease in death that's, that's beginning. Uh, in state, and particularly if you look at nursing homes and places where there have been high high amounts of vaccination. So I think that, that there's a few things that characterize the the groups that are uh, current fence sitters. Um, one is they don't tend to trust big organization. They don't trust government. They don't trust big pharma. They don't trust, you know, they, 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 and so um, the good news is, is like, I, I think about this like a product, do your homework and decide for yourself. And so when, when people started talking about, Hey, is the government going to launch a big persuasion campaign? They were kind of disappointed. I said, no, no, people, nobody wants to be persuaded. They want to be informed. They want to get straight answers. They don't want to, they don't, they shouldn't have to learn about it on some Facebook group, um, you know, with a, skull and crossbones over a, over the, over a vaccine or like a 40 foot looking needle where someone's trying to tell them that this is, which is exactly what you'd see on places like Facebook. Um, so um, our approach, if we had to, to describe it in a way that sounded like systemized and PowerPointy, um, and I don't particularly love the term, is really um, helping to inform trusted messengers. Most people say the people they trust are doctors, nurses, pharmacists, friends and family, people locally, uh, church leaders. So our entire effort, the federal government, is just getting good quality information to those people. Second thing is, is friction. Um, all of the behavioral economists uh, tell us that the people who are, there's a lot of people to, who are, they're, they're not anti-vaccine. They're not even negative. They're just like, they're not going to lift a finger to go get it. If they walked into a pharmacy and that pharmacy had vaccines available, and said, hey, do you want one? They take it. Or they walked into the Mavericks game and you know there was a station, they take it. But if if they had to yeah. make an appointment, wait in line, you know, just not worth it. Because for them and for a lot of people, if you're under if you're under 30, it's, you're not that scared. Um, you, you're not that scared. So you do it, but you wouldn't make a lot of effort. So what the implication of that is we got to go from these big mass vaccination sites to ubiquity putting vaccines everywhere, having walk-in appointments everywhere. You know, bars should be doing shots for a shot, um, you know, games, 
um, schools, everywhere. And I think what happens is you get to like, you'll get to some percentage and then we'll start trickling. So for seniors, we're at about 77% and we're gonna now fight, we're gonna get to 80% and we're gonna fight for every 5,000 additional seniors. Um, and a lot of them, it's gonna be about bringing them to their homes and mobile vans and you know, those are, they're hard for them to, to, to get out. And then we will, I think 50 to 80 will go, 50 to 65 will go really well. Um, but under 50, I think we're going to be really, really struggling and pushing and trying to um, make the case because I think we've got a lot of people that just, they're not paying that much attention to it. They're not that worried about it. Yeah. I mean, one thing is, and it's also an information gap, right? You know, I basically took a week, a few weeks ago to like just learn like literally everything I could about vaccine administration in New York City. Um, and but I had the luxury of doing that as an information savvy person who had the time on my hands to do it. And like, I think there are a lot of people out there probably don't even know that the vaccine is available for them and their group yet necessarily. But but Mark, um, that'll take. I mean, you way, obviously it's had, important to talk about yeah. misinformation too because uh, I'm, I'm, I'll you go, Mark. But but I think we we have a we're going to be fighting against um, a, a small group of people that are trying to spread messages that just aren't true about the vaccines. Um, Mark, you have a product that's fairly successful, but you want it to reach more hesitant <laughs> customers, maybe customers who are not um, reading the news all the time. I mean, what would you do? Could you have stations at Mavericks games for the state or what? Oh, yeah, of course. What? Yeah, of yeah. course. I like, you know, shots for shots, especially with the J&J. &J. You walk in and J&J &J is better suited for younger um, populations um, because the 73% versus the 94% isn't nearly as impactful for them. And so whether it's, you know, come to a game, you know, if you have, I could, if, if there's availability of J and J giving them out at Mavs games, absolutely. You know, with restaurants I'm involved with other events that I'm involved with, you know, incentivizing people. Yes. I mean, it's good for business because the minute things open back up, the snapback is already starting to happen, right? You already see Vegas and other destination places really starting to just explode on the weekends. But now, you know, imagine a conference where there's going to be 100,000 participants and, you know, you don't need a vaccine for, um, passport, but just showing your card and come on in. And if you haven't, here's a chance just to get your vaccination. Welcome to Vegas or welcome to the Dallas Convention Center for your event. There's so many ways to deal with that. But I think, you know, and where sports really plays a part is, you know, we're having vaccination sections. We're letting people in who have been vaccinated. There are rewards that we are offering that entice people to get vaccinated. And to Andy's point, the more of your friends that have experienced positive um, outcomes, the, the more likely you're going to do it. And that the number of those people is just expanding exponentially right now, 4 million a day. And you'll get to the point where You'll have to explain to somebody in your family or somebody at work or others around you why you don't have a vaccine. And that's going to become even more of a hassle than getting it. Because Andy's right. You know, if you're 25 years old and half the people you know have already had COVID and it was fine. And so you don't think twice about it. But you get to the point where your mom's asking you or your dad's asking you, who are you dating and have you got a vaccine? you know, and why haven't you got it? And that's the dinner table conversation all the time. Then it's going to be more hassle to not have it than to get it. And I think that's where we overcome a lot of the hesitancy. Um, Mark, I have a hot take for you. Um, uh -huh. My hot take is that NBA players and professional athletes 
should have been eligible for the vaccine much earlier on. Do you agree or disagree? Agree. We tried. I mean, particularly the communities that look up to them and their social media followings, um, it would have really simplified things. But, you know, there's a lot more involved than just everybody saying yes or no. And that's just the reality. Um, if I am going to give you an over-under, I'm going to give Andy an over-under. If I were to give you an over-under, I would have said that 60% of NBA players will have received at least one dose of the vaccine by April 30th, end of the month. Would you take the over or the under? Oh, the over, 60%. easily. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the over. Sure. Um, Andy, I'll give you a different over-under, not about sports. Um, we are currently averaging in the U.S. about 66,000 new detected COVID cases per day per the New York Times. Um, by a month from now, so May 9th, if you had to guess, you can go probabilistic if you want, would you say the number will be higher or lower? You know, I'm going to dodge that only because <laughs> I feel like I don't have the liberty to answer as me, but it'll be attributed to White House, you know, White House policy. And so it, sadly, that'll I'll, I'll be speaking for a bunch of other people whose opinions I don't have here. So I, I love doing this with you and I would. Dude, I'll jump in. I'll, I'll take that one. I think the reality is the number of cases will become irrelevant because the reality of the vaccine is that it's not that it 100% protects cases. It's 100% uh, protects from a lot of the impact of the virus and or not 100%, but for the most part, very, very close to 100%. And so we'll see, you're already starting to see the number of hospitalizations crater, and that's the leading indicator, and correct me if I'm wrong, for deaths. And so as you start to see hospitals not have to make accommodations for COVID any longer, you know, we don't count the number of flu cases to determine what our activity is going to be. And I'm not trying to make an analogy, you know, an absolute analogy between flu and COVID um, on a seriousness level, but at the same time, you know, in terms of just how we get back to daily activity and the things that alarm us, I think we'll pay far more attention to the number of hospitalizations and the utilization rates because that'll really be the thing that matters. Because, you know, according to and Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, everything that I read, that it doesn't make you immune to catching something, but the viral impact and the impact on, you know, of the of the virus is significantly lessened. So you know, the impact is not near where it was. And so I don't think we'll make as big a deal. The only thing I'd alter about that um, is that what you're saying, I think hopefully will be true in a short amount of time. Right now, hospitalizations are still trending up um, on, a, on a national basis because in a, a few states they're trending up a lot uh, because the variant is 60% or right. so more contagious. So we're, we're seeing about five to 10% increases in hospitalizations right now, which is a little bit confusing because we got all these factors, some going, some bringing, some depressing it, some increasing it. But what you can say is if you look at Israel, um, which is a little bit ahead of us, um, um, hospitalizations are exactly where, what Mark is saying are, are, are way down. So this is where the really tough part for us, for all of us, for sure, but you know, certainly from a messaging standpoint, from my perspective, is to message to people that we're so close but not there yet, because people really want to be there yet. And we've been we, there's been no good news for so long that at the signs of good news that we're seeing, and and Mark is absolutely right about deaths, people are um, are back to uh, if they go back to normal activity, the the math works in such a way that the spread level increased along with the variant level increased 
means that enough people that are not vaccinated, mostly mostly people under 50, are starting to get it um, because the variants, the variants, just consider the variants, you know, call it 30 to 60, call it 50% more likely to get you. And enough people have been, haven't been vaccinated yet that on a net basis, we're still going up a little bit. What it tells me is if there was no vaccination program, we'd be looking like Europe, right? We'd be, we'd have a real spike right now. We don't, we've got this little tiny thing. And I think that little tiny thing is accounting for some more hospitalizations and still 700 people died yesterday. So I agree with Mark about where this is headed. I would just ask the public to try to give us a couple more months. I mean, part of, yeah, what I'm part of the messaging, because, like, yeah. I was say, part of the messaging we're using to that end is like I'm using with my family, right? I have three kids, 11, 14, and, and 18, effectively, and, and only the oldest has been vaccinated. And we're saying, look, my 14 year old can still catch it, my 11 year old can still catch it. And so most kids have not been vaccinated yet. And so that's why we have to still be vigilant and we can't just, you know, open things up without taking the same precautions that we had take we had taken right in the middle of each wave that we have to really be careful. I mean part of I'm getting at is like, you know, I kind of make forecasts for a living. I don't make COVID forecasts, but you can go to CDC port, uh, platform and see they have 20 different people who make forecasts and they're all over the place as far as what's going to happen in the US, right? Some show a fourth wave, some show Israel and some show a plateau. Um, but Andy, what's it like when you're kind of now, you're now on the inside and it seems like there is sometimes some ambiguity about on the one hand, wanting to give people an accurate forecast, on the other hand, trying to encourage people to be careful. Um, I mean, am I, am I wrong to identify some tension there in, in public health, especially if you're now working for the White House? We're trying to be very honest about, we're trying to be honest about the tension itself. Um, so you know, I host these briefings with uh, Michelle Walensky and, and Dr. Fauci, who she runs the CDC, and the three of us, and someone, someone wrote this piece about it. It's like, she's, you know, it's sort of like you got a mom and a dad. You got, you got like all these voices. And it's not that, it's not really orchestrated. I mean, we just tell the scientists, speak your minds. Um, that's just confusing. It's hard to hold in your head at the same time, caution and optimism, right? I mean, we're not used to it. But it's funny, when, when the vaccines first were coming out, there were people who were holding in their head at the same time, like, I'm not sure if I want it. And I can't believe I'm not getting it. I need my, I want to get it now, but I'm not sure if I want it, you know? So they're like, right, everybody's going through these sort of weird feelings. They're not always consistent. And we're in this sort of weird transition period where half the country is feeling like, hey, I've had it, I'm ready to move on. Half the country is feeling like, hey, what about me? And you know, maybe half of that half is, is in the like, you go get it, better vaccine for thee, but not for me. And I'll just either free ride or not care. So we have to just recognize big country, broad, diverse, um, talking straight means that sometimes it's complex. I think the, co the coherent message is we've got an accelerating threat. So we're trying to meet that accelerating threat with an accelerating response. That's why we're doing everything we are on the vaccine front and all these other fronts. We're trying to match it. We want people to participate in the fight with us so that they don't feel like, hey, it's the government doing this and I'm a standard, I'm a pastor, you know, I'm a passenger or standing by, but we're gonna do this. And that yes, we know everyone's patience is short. We don't, we don't blame anybody for that. We know attitudes are different. We know that people wanna put this behind us and we do see an end in sight and we do see it. And when we, and we haven't always said that. And, and, and the president's even said, he's using 4th of July as a, both a call to action 
and a potential marker in time. And so, you know, that's the thrust we're on. And sadly, as you know, with these things, Nate, is if facts change tomorrow, you know, we will go back and say, that's how we saw things. And now we've got some new information. These variants caused people to start to feel differently about what, what's going to happen. And, you know, the, your point about scenario and modeling, I've got, I get, uh, I get this model that has four or five variables to it, which creates like 60 some potential outcomes of how many people are getting vaccinated, what's going on with social uh, measures, um, how quickly do, do vaccines wane in their effectiveness, um, what are the prevalence of variants, all of those variables. And you can imagine like all the graphs, all the people on the phone, on the call today can imagine there's a graph for each one of those scenarios and you debate and debate and debate what's likely to happen and you're, you're within a range um, and there's room for lots of um, opinion in there. But what it tells you basically is vaccinate people as quickly as possible, try to wear masks as long as possible. And those are the things you can control. And if you do, you really have a, a muted kind of, you don't really have a big spike. You just have this kind of a muted um, period of time over the next couple of months before people get vaccinated. If you don't do those things, then the spike could, it could turn into a spike. And you have, you know, 200 different metro areas. We have different dynamics, of course, right? And Michigan clearly has things going on very badly right now. Um, I want to get to a few questions from the audience here. I know we're running a little short on time. Um, Mark, what's your opinion on the Texas Rangers opening at 100% capacity? And kind of more generally, how do you feel about Texas's strategy? I mean, it gets a mix of credit um, and critique, obviously. Um, cases are not particularly high in Texas right now. They have been at points in time. What do, how do you feel? Has, it, has, been, has Texas been a good or a bad example for the country? Um, two, two elements there. One, in terms of what the Rangers did, obviously their decision, I would have done it differently. Um, I wouldn't send my kids, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, you know, we would have done things differently. In terms of Texas generally, I was initially hesitant, but I think when they opened up the vaccine for everybody, and I think that really changed everybody's perspective on um, opening things up and it really accelerated the acceptance of vaccines because people didn't, you know, people like, well, like Andy said, you know, vaccine for the, but not, you know, they really started accepting it and people really just started signing up and getting it. And the more people that signed up meant more people accepted it. And so I thought the opening it up was a really smart move from, um, from the vaccine perspective. Again, just opening up hundred percent, everything from the state perspective, I, I would have done it differently, but I think the opening up the vaccines was to every adult was super smart. Um, and we have a question for you from the 538 science desk actually. Um, and it might be the most important question I think globally that I proposed to either of you all night, um, all day, but what can the US do to start um, sending our excess vaccine doses abroad? Um, and Eva says for we partner with COVAX to do that on our own, what would be the the strategies we would undertake there. Yeah, I mean, so so look. First of all, um, I think the president, like any head of state, his first obligation is to get his own to get this country vaccinated. We've had the most deaths by far. We've had five times the proportion of our deaths than needed. And so, um, you know, I think he's very been very clear about saying, you know, we we you know, we've got to do that. At the same time, 
um, we have to we have to I think resume what we would consider to be our position as a global leader, not just in public health, but 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 as an example across the country. So we've already sent doses to our neighbors, Mexico and Canada. Um, I think that's just the beginning. As we get more confidence that we actually have things under control and have all the vaccines we need, which I think we're getting close to, but we're not there yet, um, we will do more of that. Um, my hope is, um, you know, so that, you know, I think we treat this like a war, and in a war, you try not to be single-threaded. You try to give yourself multiple options to have enough vaccines, for example. So if we do, and we're right, and we have more more vaccines than needed, not a single one of those vaccines is going to sit on the shelf. Um, you know, they're all going to go around the world, and they're all going to go. Um, to, and we and we have we are putting together a strategy along with the national security team to make sure that we're doing that and doing that right. Um, so in addition to COVAX, which we wrote the first check to, we put $2 billion, $4 billion commitment. We already put in $2 billion. We're, we're getting those vaccines out. Um, uh, that, that is a first step in the process. We're also um, doing something which I know, uh, I imagine Mark loves, is we're turning the US into a manufacturer and import and exporter. We're building huge vaccine factories um, and we're getting companies to work together. We announced a major agreement between Merck, who's the great, the best uh, manufacturer of vaccines in the world, and Johnson and Johnson, and we're going to be cranking out. And by the end of the year, we're going to be cranking out vaccines. And knock on wood, we do things right. We're going to be exporting uh, most, much of those vaccines, even as we create the capacity in case we need boosters or in case we, you know, need, need production in the future. But it's both a national security play for us, so we don't need to rely on the rest of the world. But, but also, you can imagine the U.S. supplying not millions but billions of doses of vaccines over the next couple of years to, to the world. That's what we're, where we're hoping to be. Uh, and and I, I, feel, I feel good about where we are right now. Obviously, there's still some unknowns that could happen around the corner. And so you, you the reason I think we're not committing to that aggressively yet is what if the, you know, a new variant that uh, hit the U.S. that the vaccines didn't work on uh, or didn't work very well on and we needed another you know, four or 500 million vaccines here well, we want to be ready for that too, and so we're just we're just getting getting ready. But I'm I'm very so hopeful. our so our because we're contracted for something like I don't know how many total, right? But like 700 million doses or something. So that yep. accounts the possibility of like needing a booster shot for some of these vaccines. And also also adolescents and and kids okay. um, around the corner as well. Um, but yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, that does account for, um, for 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 both of those things. Question for Mark: um, What has COVID taught us about the kind of uh, sports fan experience, both maybe in arena and at home? And we have seen ratings be down this year across most sports. Um, do you think it tells us that we really need the in-person experience? It's essential. Do you think it tells us that there are more ways never to consume sports? Or what kind of what lessons from uh, have you taken away from from fan reactions? Before I get to that, let me just jump in on Andy's point. Andy, I just hope we don't give Merck and those pharma companies windfall profits out of all this, that if we're giving them money, we're asking either for a windfall profits tax or we're getting some equity or something in return um, because it is a business relationship. So put that aside. Um, and then in terms of what we've learned, we, you know, we learned this summer that if sports are out of season and competing with each other, it's very difficult to get the same numbers that you did in the past. We learned that um, cord cutting 
is a significant impact on our ratings and we have to be adapted. And we're kind of in the, all sports or in the middle of an innovator's dilemma in terms of traditional linear television versus um, streaming. Now that's not necessarily a COVID thing, but where COVID really hit us with, with this COVID summer in particular, um, people changed their viewing habits because Netflix and all the streaming companies realize that they've got to invest heavily in amazing content in order to compete with each other. And so that's given where there were 500 channels and nothing on before. Now there's an unlimited number of great content that is an alternative to sports. Now that said, I think things come back in our favor because of that competition between all those streaming organizations for subscribers and most importantly, retention it's very hard to come up with hits on an ongoing basis and it's very expensive for them. And so I think we're, they're going to come back to us because when you have effectively a year round season, because even our, our off seasons are now programmed, then you sports become very valuable for retention. And so all these things came, came out of what we learned from COVID and the COVID summer. Yeah. They give me a ton of, I'm sure PhD papers done about like things that we learned from this kind of natural experiment where we collected so much data in unusual circumstance. Um, on that note, we're already about two minutes over time. I only got to about half the questions I had for you, but you know, there's so much to talk about here that's not a surprise. So um, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Andy. Look forward to talking to you, to you both again soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.